Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And this week we'll be completing our study of the parable of the soils, verses 1 through 15, our second part. Last week we didn't actually look so much at the parable of the soils itself as the context and that enigmatic statement of Jesus explaining the purpose, not just of this, but of all the parables he told in verse 9. He first, remember, gives the parable to the great crowd from many towns, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. And then to, a, to only a subset of those people does he call for a response. He says, to those who have ears, to you who have ears, let him hear. So he gives this parable to everyone, calls on a response from only some. And then the disciples came to him in verse 9 and asked him what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And we spent pretty much most of our time last week trying to unpack that bizarre and difficult quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean you're doing things like this to inhibit, to stop understanding? Which is what he says plainly. I'm speaking this way so that, or in order that, Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. It's not normally the way we think of Jesus. And um, the short answer, you can go back and listen on our sermon archive, or on our, we have a podcast, you can listen to that as well, um, is that in Isaiah, we've got to study Isaiah, the language of, of spiritual sensory dysfunction, that seeing but not seeing, that hearing but not hearing, the, the heart of stone, is used in Isaiah and used in the Old Testament pretty exclusively to refer to idolatry. And the reason for that is the, the, the notion that you are formed into the image of what you worship. You are conformed to the image of what you you value most. What you behold, you become, and then the, the pithy way that Greg Beale puts it, you resemble what you revere, either to ruin or restoration. And so in Isaiah and in the Psalms, we see this notion that the idols have eyes but don't see, and they have ears but don't hear, and they have mouths but don't speak, and those who worship idols eventually get described that same way. In fact, it's interesting, you can go back to Exodus, where the, where the golden calf worship happens, and when Moses goes down to describe it, the imagery being used, they broke out, they have stiffened their neck, they've gone out the gate. It's cattle imagery. Interesting, the people worship a golden cow, and the description of their rebellion is given in those terms. Interesting. And so what that means then is Isaiah's judgment that he was to pronounce was not capricious on God's part, but rather Israel had given themselves over again and again and again and again to idols, and now, as a judgment, they would be conformed to that image. They would become as deaf and as dumb and as blind and as unfeeling as the idols that they worshipped. And Jesus, in saying that then, is introducing a a new edge to his ministry, if you remember, back in chapter 4, when Jesus first begins his ministry, he goes to the, the, the synagogue in his hometown, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah 61, and he says, that's me. I'm the one who's been anointed. I'm the Christ, and I've been anointed to proclaim a message of good news to the poor, the announcing of sight to the blind, 
the setting at liberty those who are captives to announce the year of the Lord's good favor. And so Jesus first and foremost says, I am he who is here to preach the gospel of God. Good news, euangelion in Greek. That's where we get gospel from. Gospel just means good news. The good news to the poor. I'm that one. I'm I'm here to announce that. I'm to, to proclaim and to accomplish the setting free of captives. And we, we get that and we understand that. So Jesus, I'm here to announce and proclaim this good news and to accomplish it. But now in Luke 8, we learn Jesus is also here on a mission of judgment, just as Isaiah was. And Jesus is now quoting another passage in Isaiah, says, well, I equally have a foot in this tradition. I'm equally also here and I'm intentionally catering the way I speak. Don't miss it. You you don't do yourself any favors by trying to pretend that's not what he's saying. I'm speaking this way to also bring a hardening judgment on Israel. Jesus is well aware that the overwhelming majority of his people will reject him, will cry out for his blood, will say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify this man away with him. And Jesus This early on, while everything is looking good, in Luke so far, there's been some minor conflict. The Pharisees certainly aren't trying to kill him yet. And we've seen the crowds and the reports spread as he's a celebrity. Things are looking good. And Jesus makes it clear from the get-go. He knows how this is going to end. It's not as though he tried and failed. He knows. In fact, that's part of his mission. It's often popular to say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. He spoke in parables. He liked to take complicated divine truth and put it in simple levels for people to understand. That is not why he spoke in parables. Look at what he says in verse 9. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they are in parables so that they may not see. He spoke in parables to confound. He spoke in parables not to make it easier to understand, but for those who did not have ears to hear, harder. And we grappled with that last week, and I won't spend a lot more time on that point except to say that Jesus makes it clear. What's the difference then between his disciples who hear? Are they better? They're not idolaters? They haven't worshipped other gods in their hearts? No, it's a gift. To you it's been given. And we, we identified that only sovereign grace, God's sovereign and free grace, can turn our hearts, can open our ears, can unstop our mouths, can open our eyes. He says to you it's been given. It's a gift. So he's going to speak, and the overwhelming majority of his people, inwardly idolaters, worshipping the gods in their hearts, And yet there are some God's gifted to hear. And now we will look at the parable of the soils. Let's let's just begin by reading it. Reading it in verse, starting in verse 4 through verse 15. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you, it has been given to know the secrets 
of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The one along the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now we're going to look at this, the, the four soils. It's frequently referred to as the parable of the sower. I don't think that's as helpful. It's the parable of the soils. The sower doesn't change his action. The, the sower does one thing, and he does it equally in every situation. But we're looking at his different responses. This is a parable about responses, explaining the different responses the disciples will see, that we will see, the different responses that can take place in our heart. And Jesus gives the interpretive key. Jesus gives us the interpretive key. Parables are, are things that come alongside of other things, like the word parallel. And so this thing is like this thing, but you frequently need someone like Jesus to say it's like this thing in this way. And that's the key to understanding the, the parable. And so let's just fill in the blanks. What, what is the key? Let's start straight out. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Now that might seem obvious and intuitive, but I want you to notice the seed does not change in any of the soils. It's the same seed. The different response is not due to different seed. We got to get that because in our evangelism and in our proclaiming of the gospel, we can be tempted to think we need different seed for different soils. It's the same seed in every soil. And it's the soil's fault for why it doesn't grow. It's good seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed is not anything else. It's the word of God. And so Jesus is explaining why is it the gospel can go out, God's word can go out, and nothing happen. He's going to tell us, don't change the seed. Seed is the word of God. What is the soil? The soil is human hearts. Look in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. The seed is the word. Where did the seed fall into their heart? It's hard. It's a path. Or look down in verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. So you can call the parable of the soils the parable of the four hearts just as easily. That's the variable. And based on that heart, the variable then becomes how one hears. How one hears. That's how Jesus ends the first announcement of the parable in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you giant crowd, some of you are picking up what I'm setting down. Some of you are smelling what I'm stepping in. And if you get it, if you hear me, pay, pay heed. Is this a warning? This is this a call? 
And you see it, in, it's the active verb in every one of these soils. Verse 12, those on the path are those who have heard. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word. Verse 14, as for what fell upon the thorns, they are those who hear. As for those, verse 15, that are in good soil, they are those who hearing the word. What's the variable? People are going to hear the word in different ways. People are going to hear the word in different ways. That's why I've subtitled this, Be Careful How You Hear. All four hearts, all four types of people, all four responses hear the word. Their responses are varied. Be careful how you hear. That's why Jesus calls us out. If you in any way are getting this, if you're in any way understanding, take heed, pay attention. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him be warned. Let him be instructed. What's the goal? What's the goal of the parable? The goal of the parable is the fruitfulness of faith. The fruitfulness of faith. The reason I say that is people sometimes, I think, misunderstand the emphasis. This is not first and foremost a parable about who's saved and who's not saved, although I think we certainly can learn some things about that. The overriding emphasis in every example is, does this seed in this particular soil bear fruit? And we start with the hard soil. No, it doesn't even grow. In the second soil, the, the, the rocky soil, it springs up, then it dies. But then we, we get a clue to this in verse 14. When we look at the thorny soil, those who hear are those as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for what is in good soil, there are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit. Patience. Jesus is interested in explaining how God's word can bear fruit and what will prevent it from bearing fruit. This is about the fruitfulness of faith. Now we're going to see salvation connects with that, but so often people want to come to this and then they get in discussions over okay, is the rocky soil saved because it says they believed? Is the thorny soil saved? First and foremost, this is not about setting a minimum bar of getting into heaven. This is about fruitfulness and bearing fruit and explaining to the disciples and to the crowd, the dangers that beset faith, the dangers and the snares that will stop people from being fruitful. Now, I think we can learn the state of these people, especially when we factor in that Jesus has told us the broader explanation for why he will be rejected is that the people of Israel, and we, if we're honest, apart from God's grace, worship other gods in our hearts. We are idolaters. You could almost describe these soils as different types of idols that will prevent faith. And this call for fruitfulness, if you've been with us in this study of Luke, is not a new call. John the Baptist first sounded this note in chapter 3, verse 8, when people were coming out to be baptized. And he said to the crowds that were coming out to be baptized in verse 7, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you're repentant, do your lives demonstrate that, John the Baptist says? He's insisting, and we've seen Jesus insist as well, that there is a continuity of what you believe and what's going on in your heart and what you do. Jesus says it most clearly in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain in verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a good tree bear bad fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. You can know with certainty that the fruit that is born will show you what's going on inside. Now, don't, don't mistake that. 
It's not if you do things, the inside changes. The movement's one way, from the heart, from the source, from the head of the river, to the branches, to the tributaries. The good person, verse 45, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is insistent that his disciples bear fruit. And it be good fruit. And he's warning his disciples. Remember, he gave the Sermon on the Plain to the disciples. He's warning them how to know, are they true disciples? Are they those who will be blessed? Are they those who, when they house, they build their house, it will withstand the test, it will withstand the storm? It will stand or will it collapse? And he tells them, just as John the Baptist told them, is fruit. We'll know by the fruit. And here, he's focusing on the fruitfulness of faith. That's important to understand, the fruitfulness of faith. So let's dive in, looking at the four soils. The first is the hard path. And the blanks next to the points will give you some insight into the heart. And here you can write hard and indifferent. Hard and indifferent. So the picture is a, it's a common agricultural picture. I'm sure many of the people in Jesus' day would see. You've plowed the field. There's hard path in between the, the rows where you're... Where you're uh, Crops are growing that you walk upon, and you're scattering seed as you go. And some of the seed falls on the hard path. The birds of the air come and they grab it. What does this mean? This is a hard and indifferent heart. These are hearts that are not interested in God's word. These are hearts that are not interested in what God has to say. We've met people like this. I'm, I'm assuming if you're here this morning, that probably doesn't accurately describe you. Um, you could be other places. But what happens? Notice what happens. The devil removes the word quickly. Why? Because even though we may doubt whether God's word is the power to salvation, the devil is under no such illusion. And he knows he needs to get that out of there quickly. Because even in a hard heart, God's word can still sprout. And so the devil takes it away. What, what does that mean? What it means is it, it goes in one ear and out the other. What it means is people don't chew on it and meditate on it. What it means is they forget about it. They think about other things. We don't realize that just what we think about is a matter of spiritual battle. You ever wonder why it can be so difficult on Sunday mornings to focus? Why why some of you right now are, are checking your email, sending texts? It's because the devil's at work in stopping people from hearing. J.C. Ryle one of the last Puritans, an Anglican, wrote this. Nowhere does he, the devil, labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women being saved. From him come wandering thoughts, roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes, fidgety nerves, weary ears, distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where they come from and marvel how it is that they can find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil and his work. And so you're here, and to some degree, you want to hear what God's Word says. But even there, be, be, be careful. Jesus is saying, have ears to hear. Be understand that we are under attack. Understand that a thousand and one things may come to mind. And, and focus. Be careful how you hear. Well, what, do you, what, what next do we learn? Point B, salvation comes by hearing with faith. 
hearing with faith. Even in describing the bad soil, we learn how salvation comes, and it's important to look at. The devil takes away the seed from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. That's as simple as that, isn't it? Believing and being saved. The seed is God's word. And we can't say this too often. How does one become saved? They hear and they believe. The author of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 2 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news, the gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's the word and faith. And where that comes together, there is salvation. What word? Well, probably most succinctly put is in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians that I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the first day in accordance with the Scriptures. That, that's, that's it. That's the seed, the Word of God, that Jesus Christ came to this world. He took on flesh. He became very man of very man. He who was very God of very God. And he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment upon himself. And dying, he rose on the third day, vindicated as sinless, vindicated as the Son of God. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And that by faith in his name, we can be forgiven. That, that's the seed. That's, that's the word. And that's what the devil is trying to stop people from thinking about, trying to stop people from chewing on, trying to distract them from. And yet there it is. The message of the gospel. Salvation comes by hearing with faith, not by doing things. Remember, the whole emphasis in Luke is you prove what you believe, and you prove what you are, and you prove what you worship and trust by what you do. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because those proofs demonstrate faith and those proofs demonstrate love and those proofs demonstrate what you believe, that those proofs are the thing by which you're saved. No, it's, it's the Word of God and faith. The Word of God and faith. So how do you respond if you, if you fear this might be you? I mean, maybe, maybe you got dragged here this morning. Maybe you're not here voluntarily. Maybe you have been checking your email and texting, playing Angry Birds or finding Pokemon. I, if one of you tries to, I'm going to throw something. I'll just warn you right now. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're blessed. Like, just, oh my goodness. Okay, okay. How do you respond if that's you? If you're here, your thoughts wandering, you don't really want to be here. God's word, you've heard it, and it's sort of bouncing off your heart. You're indifferent to it. What do you do? Call on the Lord to soften your heart. Call upon the Lord to soften your heart. The disciples didn't do anything to create the climate of their hearts. Jesus says it was a gift. Psalm 86.11, the psalmist says this, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 119, verse 36, O Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies. You may, you may be frightened, aware that you are powerless to change the state of your heart. You are. But God's not. God's not. And God promises in Ezekiel to his people, he says, I will give you a new heart. 
new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and the, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you. You, you can call on God. To, oh, God, this is, when I came to Christ, this is the prayers I was praying. God, I, I, I don't really care. <laughs> I know I should, and for little snippets here and there I do, but most of the time I don't care. God, would you, would you work in my heart? Would you change my heart? We sang that, change my heart, oh God. If, if you are hearing it all, and, 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 and any part of you is hearing this in God's word, and you think, no, that's probably my heart. I, I really generally don't care. Call on the Lord to soften your heart. He, he'll answer that prayer. He does that. Okay, we've got to move on. Next, so, second soil. The rocky soil. The rocky soil. Verse 13. The ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So what type of heart are we looking at here? We're looking at shallow and superficial. Shallow and superficial. The, the root doesn't go down deep. And it looks good. There's joy. And then it fades. It's shallow and superficial. And what's, what's challenging is the, the language used here. Look at point A. This type of person, this type of heart, receives the word initially with joy. They get excited, maybe tears. Maybe they fall on their face at the worship service. They come forward, they're crying, they're singing, they're praising hallelujah. There's joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, fall away. It's frightening. That's frightening. And as much as salvation is as simple as hearing with faith, the faith that saves endures. The faith that saves true, genuine, saving faith makes it to the finish line. The Scripture is equally emphatic on this point. But it can be troubling because it says, well, they believe. The, the Bible can say that about people. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. And I'll just read you a chunk of John 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 30. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So twice we're told there's some type of faith present. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say to us, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen of my father. You do what you have heard from your father who, if you keep reading, becomes clear as the devil. These things he said to those who had believed in him. So you read your Bible and you quickly realize there's faith and then there's faith. There's a sense which people can, can have some sort of faith. Dames can even say, even the demons believe and tremble. The faith that saves is the faith that endures. Faith that saves is the faith that endures. What, what's the problem then? Point B, this... Soil ultimately rejects the word and falls away in trial of faith. Falls away 
in trial of faith. It receives the word with joy and a type of faith that falls away in trial of faith. This superficial and shallow faith, superficial and shallow heart. When the test comes, when adversity comes, the metaphor is simple. In a dry time, the plant still needs moisture to survive. And if its root structure has not gone down deeply, if the root goes down two inches and it looks good and it hits a layer of rock, when the, when the heat comes out, when the storm comes, it will be uprooted, it will dry up and wither. That's the analogy. First Peter says this in the same vein. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You get that? Peter is saying one of the reasons Christians undergo trials is so that the tested genuineness of their faith will be revealed. What happens to the faith that doesn't pass the test? It proves to be ungenuine, a counterfeit, not the valid deal or the real McCoy. It's the same metaphor here. These trials of faith expose them to be what they are, fraudulent and false. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this to a group of Christians, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. True faith ultimately will survive the test. True faith ultimately will overcome. We will prove to be overcomers. Now, I know we can fail periodic tests. We can, like Peter, cave under pressure, but we bounce back and we we come to repentance and we are restored and we get back on our feet and the Lord cleans us off and we continue on. We don't ultimately fall away. So how do you respond if if you fear this is where you're at? And I'll be quite honest. I think the second and third soils are the greatest problems and dangers besetting the American church. I, I truly believe that. There has been so, for so long, so little adversity, so little persecution over here, which is, on the one hand, a blessing. On the other hand, it is a curse. Because wherever there is persecution, wherever there is suffering for the sake of Jesus, you, you, you deal with this problem. Notice what happens. It's, this, this seed can grow. This seed can sprout as long as there's no sun out, as long as there's no storm. You only find out this is a false faith when the testing comes. And we've gone for so long in this country without testing, and it looks now like it actually may be coming. And we produce shallow and superficial professions of faith. D.A. Carson writes this, speaking of this, in his book, Basics for Believers, an Exposition of Philippians. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want 
so much gospel that I really learned to hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies or cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I don't want to love those from differing races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, if you please. That's, that's only funny because we recognize in our own hearts and even around us that, that danger that you can have a nice, happy, comfortable, white, middle-class life and be a Christian, and things can go well, and all manner of things can go well, and you can be respected in your community, and you can do all this. But we find out what we worship and we find out what we believe when the trials come, don't we? We find out what we believe when the trials come. When, when we can't have everything, we find out what we love most by what we truly hold on to and what we're willing to let go of. So how do you respond if you think this might be you? If you, if you wonder, could, could I be this shallow soil? I'm, I'm excited, there's joy now, but man, I don't know. Well, turn over to Luke 14. I'll let Jesus answer a little later in Luke. This is not the type of word that is often given in, in, in evangelical American gospel presentations. Jesus did it all the time. But he would warn people, and here are the blanks, he'd warn people to count the cost. Warned people to count the cost. Not, not so common these days. These days, in decisionalism, we just want people to, to pray a prayer, bow a knee, sign a card. P- people get prayed by, saved by praying prayers. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to minimize that. But, but there's been growing in, in our country a, a sort of minimum, lowest common denominator, set the bar as low as possible type of evangelism that, that really just skims past things. And you, you don't hear this type of stuff very often. But Jesus, like I said, said it all the time. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, here's his seeker-sensitive message. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, maybe you try to dodge this by saying, Jeremy, this isn't about salvation. This is about discipleship. This isn't about heaven and hell. This is about, are you going to be a good disciple? Keep reading. For which of you, by desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot 
be my disciple. You may still say, okay, but maybe, maybe you can be saved but not be a disciple. Turn to Luke 9. Turn to Luke 9. We'll just stay right in Luke. He said to all, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. You get this. This is about life and death. This is about heaven and hell. This is not about saved non-disciples and saved disciples. We remember he gave the Sermon on the Plain to the disciples to tell them that just because they were disciples didn't mean their house was going to stand. Rather than thinking somehow you can be saved and not be a disciple, Jesus is telling you can be a disciple and not be saved. You can be a disciple and your house can crash when testing comes. That's the point of the Sermon on the Plain. He didn't speak it to the crowds. He spoke it to his disciples, warning them that they should be afraid when people speak well of them. The very fact that we're uncomfortable with this type of cost counting, that we don't really like it, we kind of get the heebie-jeebies, can't we just move on to a nicer, you know, talk about it, indicates that we're in this problem. That the culture of shallow and superficial Christianity has, has done its work. Count the cost. Count the cost while you have your faculties about you. Look at square of the eye now. Count the cost. And Jesus' absolute demands for loyalty. Jesus' absolute demands for fealty. Jesus' absolute ob- demands that we treasure and prize him above all else. Look at that square in the eye now. And if you decide to walk away... don't do that, rather than thinking you're fine and only realizing in the test and in the trial and in the conflict that you are the rocky soil. Count the cost now. That's what Jesus is saying. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Count the cost. Look it square in the face. Prayerfully get on your knees and do business with God. Cry out like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. God will answer those prayers. Count the cost. Three, the thorny soil. The thorny soil. Verse 14, as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. What do we have here? We have preoccupied, this this heart is preoccupied and worldly. Preoccupied and worldly. It's distracted The word is choked out by the cares of this world. Again, I think this is the other great danger of the American church. In a land with such unprecedented freedom and prosperity, there is much to be distracted by. You drive past billboards and you receive emails and advertisements on the radio and on TV constantly. There is so much that this world has to offer. So much that your money can buy. So much to be done. Yet we need to to beware and be careful that we don't become preoccupied and worldly. 
There's a a stark truth here. You cannot truly love both. You cannot truly love the world and God. Turn again in Luke to Luke 16. Luke 16, 13. Jesus says it plain as day. No servant can serve two masters. No servant. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't. So this seed sown in the heart, it, it presumably springs up and grows. But over time, what proves in that heart to be truly God is the things of this world. As that tug of war happens in that human soul, over the things of this world, the things of God, the things of this world and Jesus Christ, the things of this world wings out. The, the thorns choke it out. It's, it's a tragedy. If you read through the New Testament and Paul's epistles, you'll, you'll hear of a man named Demas. Demas sends his greetings. Demas was one of Paul's church-planting missionaries. I mean, think of that pedigree. Demas is one of Paul's team, hand-picked team. Demas, who makes it into Scripture. Demas, who greets people from Scripture. Demas, his faithful companion. And yet, at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul, left all alone, writing to Timothy, says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. The word for love he uses there is agape. Demas loves this present world, and so Demas abandons the gospel and Paul. It's terrifying. It's such a promising start, and who knows, maybe the Lord shepherded him to repentance. Maybe the Lord came in and, and took his rod and his crook and, and came after him, but the last word we heard on Demas is this frightful, frightful note. We need to be clear on this. Let's go to go to First John with me. First John chapter two. Again, these are things the Bible makes very clear, very very clear. We just don't say them very often because they don't fit in with our our nice hopes and dreams of a prosperous American life and Christianity. We we, we desperately hope we can do them both. And we're convinced we can, and so we don't tend to look square in the face. First John two fifteen. It's a command now. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And you don't get any clearer than what he's about to say. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You get that? Any, any ambiguity there? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires, the eyes, the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's a tug of war's attention. Jesus is warning. And what he's saying to us is these are the types of things that will choke out the seed and will choke out faith and will cause us to be unfruitful. The danger is you start out well and then a trial and, and, and suffering comes and you, you collapse. 
Your root doesn't go down deeply. The danger is this world has so much to offer, and even though you started out focused and you started out on fire, now you've got other things that have got a hold of your heart. But he isn't saying this to announce judgment. He's saying this to warn. The whole point of saying this is there may be people who can just start to see the thorns starting to grow up. So what do you do? What's the response? Be vigilant and focused. Be vigilant and focused. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. First, cast off sin and every encumbrance. What he's saying is there, there could be things in your life, my life, that are not sinful. They're perfectly good. But they slow you down. They distract you. And the author of Hebrews is saying, perhaps you need to consider getting rid of those things if they're slowing you down. I heard someone use the analogy, you know, snowshoes are great. They're great. And I'm pretty sure it's not against the rules to wear snowshoes in a marathon. They're just not very helpful. Right? There's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Just not very helpful. J.C. Ryle again writes on this point, the things of this life form one of the greatest dangers which beset a Christian's path, the money, the pleasures, the daily business of this world are so many traps to catch souls. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins souls. In the midst of our families, In the pursuit of our lawful callings, we have need to be on guard. Except we watch and pray, these temporal things may rob us of heaven and smother every sermon we hear. We may live and die thorny ground hearers. Be vigilant. You read through Hebrews, that's that's the call. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be on your guard. Let's take heed lest we neglect so great a salvation. Do, Do you remember a time in your life when you were passionate and on fire and now that's not where you're at? Take heed. If you have ears to hear, hear. And understand it may be that the thorns are beginning to choke out the seed. What do you do? Get, get back to being focused. Get back to putting Christ into your sight. Cast off sin. Cast off encumbrances. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Finally, the fourth soil. Fourth soil. It's the good soil. Verse 15, as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What's this heart like? This is a heart of faith and faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness. It, it, it's good. It hears and receives the word. Verse point A, it hears the word, and here's the crucial bit. What does it do? It holds it fast. Holds it fast so that birds can't get it. It holds it fast so that its root goes down deep. It holds it fast so that thorns will not choke it out. To turn, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We read that wonderful, wonderful summary 
The simple gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15 that, where Paul says that I deliver to you what I, as a first importance, right? I want you to see how he introduces it. Because on the one hand, the gospel message is simple. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We turn to him, we trust him, we believe. You call on his name and be saved. And I know, and I've talked to people, we can be tempted, can't we just keep it simple like that? Why, why complicate things? Why make things harder than they need to be? Look how Paul sets this quotation up. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 is the verse that everyone's familiar with. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's, let's, let's read the setup, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... Ooh, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, by the way, there's that, there's that false faith showing up again. There's faith, and there's faith. You can have a simple gospel of a, of a suffering servant, of the Son of God dying on the cross for sins being raised, and you can give people warnings like this. They're all over the Bible, they're not all over modern evangelical gospel presentations. And we don't do people any favors. It holds it fast. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, hold it fast. If you were drowning in the ocean and, and you came across a life a life jet preserver, you would hold it fast. You'd let your riches, your bag, your phone sinks to the bottom of the ocean, you would hold on to that thing, would you not? Hold it fast. Hears the word and holds it fast with a good and honest heart. With a good and honest heart. Now here again, we may be tempted to think this, this is something you can do. You can well it up within you. You've got to have a good and honest heart. And if that's the case, then the good and honest people go to heaven because the, the good and honest hearts receive the word and bear fruit. no. Jesus has already told the disciples the only reason they've heard his word, the only reason they have ears to hear, is God has given it to them. And I'll read you again Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, where the Lord God says this, I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If, if you have a heart to receive God's word, that heart itself was God's own gift to you and not yours to take the credit for. Jesus tells them it's been given to you to hear. Faith is God's gift, gift of God, not of man that we should boast, with a good and honest heart. And ultimately, what sets this apart? Because initially, you could have the thorny soil and the shallow soil and the good soil, and initially, they all may look the same, right? I mean, the, 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 the rocky soil, the shallow soil, springs up, yay, and it's joy. And it's not until the thorns choke out 
the seed in the thorny soil that it dies, so presumably it has a start. There's some type of fruit. It just doesn't come to maturity. So initially, they might look the same. what's What's the characteristic, the defining characteristic of the good soil? It perseveres in faith and faithfulness. It perseveres in faith and faithfulness. It holds it fast and honest and good heart and bears fruit with patience, or better translated, endurance. This is that tree from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers because it's got a deep root structure connected to the vital life-giving water. Even when the storm comes and even when the heat comes, it keeps bearing fruits. We're back again to the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus saying, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by the fruit they bear. Jesus is telling us that what's the hallmark of faith? The hallmark of faith is not how emotional you get. The hallmark of faith is not how sincere you were when you prayed the prayer. The hallmark of faith is how are you living your life today? What are you trusting in today? What are you putting your hopes in today? What type of fruit are you bearing today? Not last year, the year before, today. And if you're bearing fruit, and if you're following the Lord, and if you're confessing your sin, God bless you, be encouraged. But this parable is a warning. And I'll just end with the notes that Jesus ended with when he gave it to the crowd and not the disciples. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those of you here today who have ears, who you, you hear, you recognize this is describing you. Do something. Don't just sit there and walk out and let the birds take the seed from your heart. Do something. Talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to someone else. Talk to God. Do something. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just pray that you would, by your word, soften our hearts, that you would... Break up the rock and thorny soil. You would plant your word deep in us. That You would cause it to bear much, much fruit. Oh, Lord God, cause not just the desire, but the following through. That Any of us here, Lord, who, who realize we may be in danger of being rocky soil, we may be in danger of being thorny soil, we may be in danger of being the hard path. Oh, Lord God. Let us act upon it with zeal and alacrity. Let us zealously and aggressively and enthusiastically wrestle with you through that. Call out to you, O Lord God, every way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.